me. Thank you for coming, by the way. Absolutely. You know, I welcome such opportunities to share a little bit of myself with uh, my colleagues and the students. So I appreciate being asked to at least give the opportunity to share a little bit of myself. So thank you for you to... And salam alaikum. I don't want to miss my chance to say salam alaikum. Alaikum assalam. And that also uh, is very heartening that you don't find uh, non-Muslims or even colleagues who I worked there for, what, 20 plus years? But I dare say you're one of the first to even acknowledge that greeting. Really? Yes. You know, I like linguistics and I like, I like words and languages. It gets me in trouble sometimes, but I mean, hip hop culture, sometimes there's, 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 you know, that's the appropriate way to greet some people. I'm surprised 20 years, but this is okay. This is in, in Johnson County. We're talking about, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think that Johnson County is changing demographically, but it has been traditionally more white. I, I remember when I was doing research, for on Facebook, actually, before I came to this college, uh-huh. I start. I I found out this was going to be about population, and so I studied the the the, the demographics, the data. Uh-huh. And when I first started here in two thousand nine, I don't know if Wikipedia still says this, but it called Johnson County the Orange County of the Midwest. <laughs> that it was, and it, it. I don't. That's that's opinion, but. Um, it is true that it was founded largely by white flight, people leaving the, the, the inner city to, to rebuild an easy driving distance from downtown. And I, I think, you know, having a homogenous, homogenous group, nothing wrong in that, but I think having the approach towards new concepts or learning and growing and adapting that's where the key is. You can have a diverse group, but they, it could be a stagnant group. So diversity for the sake of having diversity doesn't work either. When you're talking about diversity for the sake of diversity, I, I noticed that today I was going through um, my email and the, uh, the, the info list and this, and it seems like there's a lot of new acronyms and ABC, DEI, ODEI, MPAC, I think now ABC I thought was American born Chinese because it's a book by George Vlad, I think um, he came and spoke at JCCC and you know, my wife is from Taiwan. So I've been familiar with that term ABC, but I don't think they have anything to do with that here, do they? But the ODE, the DEI and the MPAC and whatever, I'm not sure what that stands for. I think that's the student council or it's activities and, but they're all seem to be interested in the diversity. This seems mm-hmm. to be an issue of the moment. Where do you think that that's coming from? And, and what do they mean when they talk about diversity? And- well, so for me, you know, ABC right now, and we have, you know, you mentioned the American born Chinese. We have the people from Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan. There's a common terminology in that community and it's called DESI, D-E-S-I. So, when I'm talking with, uh, let's say, a friend of mine, and she says, oh, was this a Desi? It is immediately referring to the fact that even though linguistically we are different in terms of the, this region, but it means literally the 
The term comes from the word DES, DES, and DES means homeland. Okay, so it's okay. a Hindi, H-I-N-D-I, Hindi word, or it could also mean an Urdu word, which is my language. And so it means homeland. So now somebody who's from the homeland, a homie, would be a sort of a colloquial translation, means um, that this is person from the our part of the world. So as soon as you say that, it, it conjures up an image, it conjures up a certain mindset, if you will. So I think ABC, so we have also a term called ABD, American born Desi. You say yes. ABD, you think, oh, I see who, he's one of those or she's one of those parents who immigrated. Although this person was uh, born to Indian parents or Bangladeshi parents or even Sri Lanka uh, right now, you know, Sri Lanka would be included as well, I suppose. So, so we have that image. So now when you see the term ABC, I think of it as the academic branch council. These acronyms, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or ODEI, Office of Diversity, Equity, what do they mean and what are they there for and what are, what are they trying to accomplish? And I think we are still at a very superficial level. Let's count the different jelly beans. You know, we have so many red ones, many green ones, and so on and so forth. But I don't think we are there yet where we have extrapolated the very essence of their existence and how we are going to shift the needle of cultural intelligence. I don't think we're there yet. And so what purpose they do serve, I suppose it is better than nothing that we've got to the stage where we are starting to count the different colored jelly beans. So there is maybe a slight consciousness, but unless you give me an inclusive voice, unless you really understand the I part of the ODEI, the diversity, equity, and inclusion. So being an institution, you will give me the same salary, you will give me the same days off, or you'll give me the same time off for maternity leave. That part is equity, that's policy. But inclusion is where the cultural needles needs to shift. And I don't think a lot of organizations really understand the inclusion part of it. Being part of or excluded from, I think that's part of a big conversation we're having right now. And I think that the re relationship, I think, between in, in identity and inclusion, it has to know who you are, you know, and you have to represent an authentic voice. And you have to be in a place where an authentic will be valued and listened to. It, otherwise, it, it, it does, it affects freedom and autonomy more than I really think. But before I express myself, I have to feel safe trust and you have to feel safe. You're right. Safe and trust. And so for me, if I feel that anything that I say towards global awareness or towards sensitivity towards Muslim culture, or if I develop a course on is Islam and some dimension like women in Islam, if I'm going to be viewed as proselytizing Islam and you're going to say, well, she's a Muslim woman, she's got a, uh, hidden agenda to convert as many lost souls as possible, I'm going to be shut, you're going to shut me down. And that has happened to me in the past. Okay, I have a question because I, I was raised Catholic and I went to Catholic school for six years. 
And that is part of the, the local Catholic tradition. That's part of a lot of Christian traditions. Mm-hmm. Is that part of Islam, though, the proselytizing, the trying to convert people? Is that even... Now, when I lived in the Far East, I saw none of that in Taiwan, China, Thailand, did my travels over there. Is it even, is, is it something we attribute to Muslim culture or Islam that may not even exist? Is that part of it? Well, no, you're talking about two different aspects. One yeah. is the academic aspect and one is the, from a spiritual aspect. So okay. your question is based on what? The academic aspect that is proselytizing a part of academic culture in Pakistan or in Muslim countries in general. Do you think it's a part of culture in colleges here? Well, all depends, right? If you are... I mean, I, Christian proselytizing mostly is what I'm thinking of. Pardon, I, you know, other people, I, I think that ideally we don't, we're not supposed to have that in the United States, but sometimes I wonder if it, it happens more than you think. I don't know. I, I think, you know, to be honest, I, I find that when professors behind academic freedom and propagate their own agenda... It can, bec- it can take a form of proselytizing. You know, I, I was going to get to that later. I wonder sometimes if, if we use academic, the, the academic freedom as a cloak uh, to, to hide an agenda. It's like, I re- you know, well, I, I can say whatever I want, but just because you can say something doesn't mean you should. To answer your initial question, to answer your initial question is, proselytizing and converting people to being Muslims is part of academic agenda in Islamic countries, I can unequivocally say that when you're talking about urban population where people are going to school, whether, so we have in many parts of the world, you will find whether it is Egypt or whether it is Pakistan or whether, so schools are secular for the most part. But when you're looking at the rural population where literacy standards are low, the curriculum would involve a significant portion of Islamic uh, instruction. But in the cities, in the urban areas, you would not find that uh, there is a significant... So, of course, so take my example. Growing up in Pakistan, I was raised in Catholic schools all my life. Really? Yes, I was. Okay. So why was that? Why did my parents feel obligated to send a Muslim daughter to a Catholic school? And that was because when the British had left Pakistan after ruling out for, on us for hundreds years or more, they left the legacy that if you cannot speak like an English woman, you are nowhere in the society. So where do you get the better education, the ability to speak like the master race, the master race being the British. You get it in schools run by nuns for the girls, and uh, of course, Catholic schools run by brother or monks uh, for the boys. So my, be- my brothers went to a British grammar school, and my sister and I, we were sent to the convent. Now, does that create a conflict? No, because I did go to the chapel. It was my choice. Or I could sit out and be separated from my Catholic colleagues uh, or my Catholic friends, and I would get special instruction in Islam. I actually taught at a college, a Catholic college, mm-hmm. and it's, it was amazingly open-minded. The people that worked there 
were amazingly open-minded and you could, and you would have frequent conversations about philosophy or religion. It, it, it was part of their philosophy. It was interesting you mentioned that. And this was in Atchison where they would get international students from around the world. Oh, you or were Mar talking about Benedictine? Yeah. You've heard of a, or a Nobel Prize winner, a Peace Prize winner, Wangari Matai. That was like 95, I think. She actually went to school in Atchison for a while. And so that, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about, I realized that Pakistan was a colony, but really what I remember is my roommate when I was in Taiwan was a big cricket fan and he hated Pakistan because you guys won all the time. I think you were, <laughs> I think you won the world cup or whatever it's called then. But I know, you, I know Pakistan really good in cricket. Yes, it is. It has been a world champion at least once. So to me, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that a Muslim woman can go to a convent and still retain her identity. I think that's very interesting. And I'm sure there was some pressure to, to, to convert you. I mean, I'm, the predominant environment around me is the chapel, the hymns, and the way the nuns were trying to, you know, to the, the very notion that a young girl is starting to be raised partly by women who have never married and have devoted their life to Christ, that raises a question of what is, what is the role of women? And that used to always uh, concern me. And I would have conversations with my mother, who was also an educator, that why, are, why is this happening? Or why do, they, why do they wear white? Or why do they not do all of these things? So that created a diverse moment diverse moments in my life and I didn't even realize that what does it mean and I remember vividly there was a time when my Islamic teacher at the convent was not feeling well and here is a nun who's teaching me about Islam whose own ancestry is from subcontinent from India. That's interesting. So so this is what happened when the British came they had a concerted effort to convert. So now, how do you convert? There was a conversion based on the fact that I'm going to give you land or I'm going to go ahead and give you civil service where you can enter and do well economically, financially. So a large portion of the population, Hindu population, ended up converting because there was so much to gain. And I'm sure some Muslims did too. Now, what happened? The British left, but that convert, converted status to exist to this day, that they are the converted Hindus. And so those converted Hindus, they all have their last names as a perfect giveaway because they are called Masih, M-A-S-I-H, Masih. So when they have that last name Masih, it's for the Messiah. And you know that her, her name could be Samira Masih. If you saw my last name and you saw the word Samira Masih, you could bet that I'm a converted Hindu who is now a Christian. That's fascinating. You mentioned women in Islam a little bit ago. Okay, one, one thing that's relevant for me in my teaching, I wondered if I have Muslim women in class, should I be more conservative? in terms of content or examples, uh, reading selections, that sort of thing? I think to me, really, um, I, some years ago, I'll give you an example. 
a colleague at JCC approached me and said that um, on Fridays between one and two, I have a class and students have come to me and said that I will have to quickly take some time off and pray because Friday is the Sabbath. I didn't have another section of the class to enroll in. What should be my response? Or actually it was also something about leaving the class a little early. It was not during the class, but leaving the class early to get to the mosque. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's entirely your choice because on the one hand, the religion values education, but also the religion obligates males to, st uh, to pray in a congregation on a Friday because it's the Sabbath. Muslim holidays are on, this, on the lunar calendar, aren't they? So they, they, it's not, not about the holiday. It was not about the holiday. It uh -huh. is Saturdays for the Jews, okay. for the Muslims, Sundays mostly for the Christians. Okay. So Friday around one to, you know, there are now that the congregations has grown in the Overland Park area, they are actually conducting two prayers, one at 1230, the other one at 130 and so forth. So about an hour's worth of service. So if the student approaches you and says, Professor Dixon, can I go ahead and leave at 12.45 rather than at 12.50, would it be okay? And now you are clueless. Are they pulling a fast one? Is this really real? What should I do? And I think that's where these conversations help in terms of making some, or, or another situation that I recall was somebody who was, um, had approached me and said that one of the assignments they had given to their art class was to draw a nude. Now, the Muslim student in the class was very uncomfortable drawing a nude because on the one hand, your religious convictions are coming in, uh, in, in they are in conflict with what you're being assigned. What would be the approach of the art instructor. Well, I think I told that art instructor, would the dimensions of art, would the, can that be brought into play by assigning some other? So one of the one of the in one of the you know guidelines in Islam is that when I draw a human form, I'm trying to compete with God because He's the perfect person to draw my image there's no no yeah i've heard of but that now i'm recreating the image that god has drawn so so the way you express art and that's why the predominant form of art in islamic culture probably diagonal designs looking at something from nature uh probably flowers etching of sorts but rarely do you find human forms with the exception that you know, ancient Persian art reflects a lot of uh, a lot of human interaction. So it does happen. Now, having said that, I personally like to draw. I do, and my sister in Australia, the doctor, she's always been in, interested in art. I think each one of us finds our own our own balance in life. You know, from an Islamic perspective, I shouldn't be conducting in conventional banking because they are paying me interest. 
That's true. It, it, I shouldn't be using my credit card because the credit card company makes money off of money without putting anything productive. But I do have a credit card. It would be hard to get by in modern society in the United States without one. It would. On a practical concern, there was a, there's a link on the, uh, the agenda that, that I talked about. Sometimes to teach grammar or mechanics, I might try and find an example that's funny or humorous. But, and so I give you, an, there's an example, there's a link to uh, the Oxford comma. You know what, you're, okay, the Oxford comma should be, it's probably, you're familiar with that. It's like if you have a list of three items, All right. you use the comma between the and. Well, there's a, there's a cartoon, Hitler, Stalin. No, it was JFK, Stalin. And I don't know if you've seen that link. I'm not sure that it's appropriate to share, though. If I have, I want, the thing is, should I consider Muslims to be any different from Christians? Or both, I, I might offend a devout Christian with the same image, I suppose. You could, you could. But I think intent is the key here. Really? I believe this is go on, please. Because for me, if your intent is look at me, we are a liberal culture, I can show nude paintings, I can talk openly about certain issues, and you would never have that freedom in your backward culture. Condescension there. If if that is the intention and your entire discussion is premised on that mindset, that attitudinal mindset, then yes, it's problematic. But if your intention is that let's discuss this from a critical analysis, okay. then I think it starts to take on a different flavor. I think that's a really good answer. I think that that's, and, and you never know because and things things change. The reason that I worry about intent is sometimes we say in English, sometimes the intended message doesn't matter. If everyone's offended by something, then maybe you need to change the way you communicate. It's like the customer is always right. You know, it's the idea is that the market, really, you're a business professor. That doesn't mean every customer is right about everything. What it means is the market will reflect what the truth. But, you know, so so for me, as a Muslim professor, as a minority, if I am discussing the terminology and I use the N-word, which mm -hmm. I used to when I was teaching org behavior, I was told, oh, whoa, 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 you really got away with murder. If I was a white professor and I used that, they would have been extremely offended. And I thought, let's critically examine the term rather than discussing the emotional content, because it's like, if I don't address it, it doesn't exist. Okay. I mentioned that that's one of the self-censorship can be so dangerous. And we have, and if we start not having conversations because we're afraid of offending someone, the threshold is so low for offense that I think we do, we risk a real disservice. We're not, we're not, we're not teaching. But well, you know, the key again is come to any discussion with an open mind. If you're going to discuss a concept with a preconceived agenda that we're going to discuss it and then we're going to wrap it up by saying, hey, you know, listen, it is what it is. I, I don't think you did any service to yourself or to the, to the students. So many times I get frustrated 
because let's have a discussion to prove my preconceived agenda. Recently, there was a, there was a case, and I'm jumping to the next sort of concept, in Arizona <clears throat> at a community college where a professor who has a negative view of Islam has brought in all the critical, uh, all the outliers in terms of how Islam is a violent religion. And those, that is the sole purpose of using his world politics class. He cherry picked the data. He, he, he went looking for, he had an idea, he had yeah. an, it's a, a end point, and he went looking for data to support his point of view. Exactly. Which exactly. is really important to teach people. What you were saying about in good faith, I think that in order to have any sort of meaningful conversation about composition or debate, or any sort of conversation, we have to we have to start in good faith. We have to be authentic. I think. Um, but what happens oh. when you? So basically, you know, he got away with teaching the class that he had for a number of years, and now, whoa! All of a sudden, he gets Muslim students, and the Muslim students have a question that Islam teaches violence. A true, mostly true, not true. You know, whatever. Now, if you say not true you're dinged on the exam. So all of a sudden now this is being addressed. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the instructor says, this is my academic freedom. Well, if this is where you run into, I think one fear people have of, an edu of a higher education is of indoctrination, that you'll get rogue actors or people deciding the truth for other people. And for him to say, come up with that very biased, the question here, the problem is bias. So, so, so really, if you were to think in terms of a progression of our concepts, Islam, homosexuality, whatever, you, you start at a level where you are even unaware. I was unaware of many of the constructs that I have now faced in the society. So you start with complete unawareness, right? Then you have a duality. Oh, I'm a heterosexual female, but there is a homosexual female. There is a lesbian. So now I'm running into a duality. Then I start to self-explore. What does it mean to be a homosexual? First, there was complete unawareness. And true story also happened to me that when I trained as a clinical psychologist, I was appointed as the uh, coordinator for the dorms on the east side of campus at the university. The first case that I deal with are two homosexual males who are having conflict and there are some suicidal thoughts and what have you. I am having the hardest time dealing with homosexuality because that is an alien concept, okay? Mm -hmm. So now I had to go through self-exploration with my supervisor and address my own biases. And from that point onwards, you are now taking a risk. You are now starting to say, oh, I see. This is the same feeling, but now, and the last stage is what I integrated. I integrated that the love between a man and a man can have the same quality of love where it is between a man and a woman. So. I went from unawareness all the way into integration. I forgot your background in clinical or behavioral psychology. I think that's really must be an advantage for, for dealing it, it with. It has served me well, but at the same time, I run into so many conscious biases that as 
somebody who is understanding where the person has had a mental block is refusing to get past that. So it's a dual-edged sword, I suppose. If I didn't know, I would just engage my ego and say, well, the heck with you. But on the other hand, my clinical approach sort of wants to unblock that, that place where that person is stuck. What would, what did, okay, you're also the advisor for the Muslim Student Association, right? Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to a Muslim student that ends up in my class that I can pass along? Someone starting out at JCC first, first semester, first year, do you have any advice you'd give them? I, I think one of the biggest things that I want them to do is not feel intimidated because they are a minority in the class. They need to always be their authentic self. There's nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to be ashamed of, given the prominent message in the media. Islam equals terrorism. Islam equals imp- oppression of Muslim women. Without any thought to the cultural differences, to the patriarchal cultures, to the anthropology of those countries or those regions, it's such a broad brush approach because you know what? It's convenient. Mm-hmm. It, we do stereotyping. Why? Because it's convenient. It's efficient behavior on our parts, right? It things up, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it just sort of does a quick and dirty, and your brain doesn't have to tax itself with all the complex dimensions. Oh, your Greg's wife is Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. She's good in math because she's Asian, you know? She's not good in math, by the way. I, I, yeah. I'm just being facetious as you but No, it's it's... There's there's lines in songs about it's a popular joke how hard Chinese math is uh, because how and everyone in China is good at math and they all know kung fu which not that's not true either but I know that because I went to live in Taiwan for several years yeah I think that it was kind of weird I had very few preconceived ideas which probably helped there was a level of cluelessness for me when I was there so there, you were at the unaware stage right and I. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think one of the things I want to, uh, I wanted that I've learned is even good stereotypes can be dangerous. Like making the assumption that, oh, all people from certain culture are good with money or they're all good with math or all good with something. I think even a stereotype or a bias towards a positive trait or value is fraught with peril. During- well, I, I think a lot of people think, oh, she covers, so she must be a devout Muslim. She covers, so she must be extremely conservative in her thinking. She covers that, therefore, she must be, I'm not an ambassador for all Muslim women, for God's sakes, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a third child in a middle-class family from Pakistan. Why can't I live my life as an individual? How old were you when you first came to talk? 18. Did you speak much English when you first came? I grew up in the Catholic school, so there was no chance not to speak English. That's right. So you had the English. Yeah. And it was spoken quite, I imagine it was fairly widely spoken in Pakistan as well. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. My, I mean, if this gives you a clue, my dad, God bless his soul, when he was a young child, because of the colonizers, he never learned to read or write the script, which we use, which is the Arabic letters. Mm-hmm. Right. But all throughout, when I came to United States, all his letters were always in English. And I asked dad, I said, dad, can you never write? And he said, no, because when I was a child and we were punished for using the letters. 
I, when I was in Taiwan, I heard stories of if, if students spoke Taiwanese, because Mandarin is the official language in Taiwan, and official language in Taiwan. I had students that they were beaten, but they were they had to speak only Mandarin. If they caught speaking Taiwanese or a, a, an Aboriginal dialect, they would be beaten. I forgot about hearing that until you said that. So, yeah, when you start examining, like the women in Islam class, when I'm talking about stereotypes, which is one of the topics, stereotypes of Muslim women, the stereotypes of Muslim women, and when we address, when I address that with my students, yes, of course, there are stereotypes, which is that you are oppressed, you are a second-class citizen, and what have you. So then I address the stereotypes around us in the society. You know, what are African Americans like? What are um, what are the stereotypes towards other? You know the Hollywood celebrity, what is the stereotype there? And so on and so forth. We understand that this is not unique to a group, but where, where do stereotypes come from and how are they reinforced in our everyday life? And the key is, honestly, for good learning to take place is to connect the dots with where the student is. No, that's good. Right, it's like the Pavlovian dog phenomena. You keep repeating the image. So one of the assignments I give my students is go ahead and Google Muslim woman. See what comes up. And when you do Google Muslim woman, even until last year, all the images that popped up were women in dark black robes, some wearing the niqab, some wearing the hijab. But that was not an accurate representation of how Muslim women view themselves. But what does that do to the popular construct of a Muslim woman? Well, I think it's interesting. Pakistan, by the way, is the number two most populous, the largest population. Yeah, after Indonesia, yeah. After Indonesia, yes. I've been to Indonesia. I was really surprised to find out that in Far East, there's it, it's a much broader and more, more inclusive religion than, than I initially imagined. Right. I mean, if you go all the way to China, the Uyghur Muslims, the people in Europe, history of Muslim migration in America is fascinating. One last question. Do you know, I, I've been doing research on Native Americans and Chinese for quite some time right now. Tell me a little bit about um, Muslim migration to America. I'm going to show you... Something in slaves. What's it say? Prince among slaves. That what is that? Pardon? What is that movie about? True story of Abdul Rahman Ibrahim Sori, an African prince enslaved in the American South. And it's a good discussion on the Muslim migration in America through African slaves. Okay, that, that's, that's fascinating. And I never considered that. So, yeah, and I think um, other place that I, and I can send you a website, the Islamic National Group Inc., where they do have free, uh, what should I say, resources to start mm -hmm. these discussions and topics. Oh, that would be great. Women in Islam, you will have to register at the site. Okay. And uh, one of the fascinating things they did recently was intra-racism amongst Muslims. Okay, that sounds fascinating. Because when we talk about, with my experience in Taiwan, people think of but as a homogenous culture, but really there's four different races that we would consider. There's the Han Chinese, 
the Taiwanese, the Aboriginal, who are more Malay, and the Hawkinese. But people don't even recognize, that doesn't register on anyone's understanding unless you've lived there for a few years. Of course. Years. And even intermarriages within these communities. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that drove me crazy. Like, people would say, no, my mom said I can't marry a Chinese person. And it's like, but you're in Taiwan. Well, you know, that's what she means. Someone whose parents came from China, you stay away from them. So, so imagine how much of a homogenized group we, we feel that all Muslims, regardless of Indonesia, Pakistan, regardless of the local cultures, are being lumped together. No. We're not even at the stage of intra-racism discussion within the communities. That's an excellent point. It, it keeps things in perspective. It, that, that's, that's, an interest, that's an important perspective to maintain. That we, that there is no pan-Muslim culture any more than a pan Chinese or a pan Native American, they're all different groups and they all have different identities and values. And sure. I think that By the time Islam starts in 632, 633 AD and starts to going westward and is starting to go to different areas, you don't think that we are in that Islam encountered indigenous cultures? One of, one of a good assignments to introduce to students is to just tell them to look at the structure of mosques in China, in Africa, and in the Middle Eastern regions. Just study the architecture of mosques and you will see the indigenous influences on architecture. And the spread of Islam through traders, through merchants, through poets, mystics, that's a fascinating study. And how is Islam spreading and where, what cultures is it encountering as it spreads? Uh, that, that, that's just giving me a lot of really great ideas. Well, well thank you so much. Samara. You are so welcome, Greg. Glad gonna, we could do this. Thank you for being my first real conversation with, with a diverse voice. Thank you. Thank you for including me.